No matter who you are or where you come from, you have the right to live your life and no one should ever have to apologise for their ambition. Today we talk to someone who is a living example of that truth and who can tell you how to do it. Hi, I'm Penny DeVolk. Welcome to Grit in the Oyster, a podcast offering insights for women leaders. Why grit in the oyster? Well, because an oyster makes pearls from a foreign object or irritation. And that's often how we can feel as women leaders in organizations today. The trick is not to get spat out, but to grow into that natural gem. Through conversations with leaders and experts in the field of women in leadership, I hope to offer insight and inspiration as well as practical advice, helping you navigate those grit in the oyster moments or times in your career. It's an opportunity to reflect, to step out of the fray, to tune out some of the noise and tune into being the best leader you can be. It's my real pleasure today to introduce Shelley Archambault, a recognized global business leader, in fact, a trailblazing female executive pioneer, former CEO of Metricstream, who Reid Hoffman, co-founder and former executive chairman of LinkedIn, describes as the woman who pulled off the most incredible Silicon Valley turnaround you never heard of. Shelley is one of high tech's first female African-American CEOs and has been featured frequently in Forbes, The New York Times, Business Insider and others. Formerly an executive at IBM and CEO of Blockbuster.com, she was recruited to be the CEO of a then struggling Silicon Valley startup, which is now Metricstream a recognized global leader in governance, risk, and compliance software solutions. She serves as a Fortune 500 board member and holds board seats at Verizon, Nordstrom, Roper Technologies, and Okta. She's also an author. She's the author of the recently released book, Unapologetically Ambitious. It's a bold and inspiring book full of wisdom, telling the story of growing up an ambitious black girl in the racially charged 60s and 70s, detailing the risks she took, the strategies she engaged to steer her family and her career and her company towards success. A very warm welcome, Shelley. Well, thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Listen, I just loved your book, and it's not only an amazing story, but a very personal one. You know, and, and the way you were able to tell your backstory of this shy, gangly black girl who sort of set her sights on becoming a CEO at 16 and then made it happen. Who was that girl? <laughs> well, it was, uh, this girl was a gangly, you know, black girl growing up in a predominantly white neighborhoods during some racially charged times of the 60s, early, early on, and then into the 70s. So what that meant is it was very clear to me early on that the odds were just not in my favor to get whatever I wanted out of life. It was clear people didn't expect much from me other than my parents. And that if I just did what everybody else did, then I wasn't going to get much. Because when I looked up, there weren't many people that looked like me doing things of significance. So I knew that I had to do things differently. And being intentional and trying to strategize and figure out how to improve my odds really made a huge difference for me in my career and life. Yeah, and your your book outlines those very powerfully. I think it was your guidance counselor was the first 
person to describe you as ambitious and you've you've called your book unapologetically ambitious how was it when you were that young girl to be ambitious you know it's interesting i think when you're young you have the advantage of most people don't don't take you very seriously so when i was young being ambitious was a good thing it wasn't until i entered got well into my career that suddenly being an ambitious woman could actually be seen as a negative right uh, but early on it was actually a good thing and people encouraged it which was wonderful and yes my guidance counselor played a huge role because she was the one that connected the dots for me that being involved with clubs and organizations like the American Field Service and French Club, National Honor Society, even Girl Scouts, uh, and leading those organizations was very similar to being part of a company and running and leading a company or a business. And when she made that connection for me, I thought, oh, great. I'm goal oriented. That gives me a goal. I'll go run a company. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm going to do with my life. Exactly. So you yeah. You, I love it. And you, you loved leadership roles pretty much early on, running, as you say, for office, lead, taking on leadership roles in clubs and groups. How important is that experience, do you think, for young women? Oh, I think it's huge because it really is some of the first opportunities you get to lead. And the advantage of working and running one of those groups is frankly, you know, teenagers, come on, they're not going to do anything they don't want to do. So what happens is you learn how to create an environment and get people to do things, not just because you ask them to do things, but you create an environment where they want to do it. And frankly, that's also a skill that I have leveraged all through my career because anybody can direct and demand. But that's not necessarily the most effective way to get the most out of people. Much better if you can create environments in which they want to perform, where they want to bring their best selves, where they want to make a difference. And that is a different type of leadership. Yeah, really interesting. What would you call that kind of leadership? <laughs> you know what? I always called it magnet marketing. I was like, the whole idea <laughs> is attract people to want to work with me. I love it. And um, you say in the, your book that throughout your life, you, you know, your family has obviously been huge for you and you found strength in moments when you were somewhat out of your comfort zone, but what you call standing on a foundation you can trust. How do, how do you build that foundation? Mm, I was really fortunate in that the foundation was really in place for me from the start. And that came from my parents. I had a very strong family, and not just parents, but extended family. And I knew that they were always there for me. So that was the first, think of it as, you know, set of concrete right down on the foundation. Yeah. And then I kept adding to it through my husband, through my friends, my network, my, I call my network, my village, right? All of those elements add to the foundation of strength. And I think it's important to have it. So if you don't have it at home, then it's important to create it outside. It can be your church. It can be community. You know, there are a lot of places that we can go, get engaged with, and then lean on, right, to provide that foundation. Yeah, to create your own village. Yeah, exactly if you don't right. necessarily have it already. Yeah, 
imposter syndrome. There's a big uh, component in your book about that, and you know that will be familiar to many women listening. Um, and and it was very compelling your story. How did how do you deal with that little voice questioning your capabilities? How did you deal with that throughout your career? Oh, I know. Well, the, you know, the first thing is <laughs> you have to realize that everybody studies show almost everybody feels imposter syndrome at some point or other. It just turns out that women experience it more than men and women of color the most. Mm. So realizing that it's not you. I mean, if you were the only one or one of a few, then you could say, okay, it's me, right? It's my issue. But no, because everybody has it. It says to me, it's actually an issue that's caused by, I, I think it's the judgmental nature of society. Right. That help that breeds all this like insecurity, if you will, or the questioning and self doubt. So first thing I try to do is remind myself, okay, this is not really real. I know I'm feeling it, but it's not real. <laughs> it's kind of like okay. I used to tell my kids. Good advice. Watch, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like I used to tell my kids when they watched television and saw crazy things happening. It's like, guys, this is not real. All right. It's TV. It's make believe. I know you see it. It feels real. It's not real. So first thing is I try to tell myself that. Uh, if that doesn't work, then I think back to, okay, what's causing me to feel this way? So somebody has either offered me a new role or invited me into a room or a group or to speak, right? Somebody has offered something that has created this feeling. Well, they wouldn't have offered it if they didn't believe that I could do it. Yeah. So I need to believe them. And if that didn't work, then I faked it. <laughs> I've, I've, it's called fake it till you make it. But literally, it's like, okay, take a deep breath right? And walk in, honestly. And I've been dealing with this my whole career. Even when I joined my, my public boards, when I got my first Fortune 500 board, I had been serving on public boards for years. I'd been a CEO for years. I'd done all these things. And yet, when I get there and arrive and I'm getting ready to walk across the threshold of the Verizon board meeting, all of a sudden, that same little voice came to my head of, oh my God, Right? Am I really ready? Yeah. Am I going to be able to stand toe to toe with these people? Right? Are they really going to want to listen to me? I mean, all those things happened all over again. And I'm like, really? Are you kidding? Um, <laughs> but it did. So therefore, it's like, fine. You take a deep breath, you put your shoulders back, and you tell yourself, okay, I'm walking into this room as a corporate director for Verizon. And I'm going to play that role until I figure out how to actually do that role. Because I will figure it out. I always do. We always do. Yeah, that is so heartening for women as well. Even knowing that everybody, sometimes imposter syndrome can come from you think everyone else has got it so together. So just knowing that a lot of people are just faking it to get there. You know, your, your mother was a huge influence on you. And I think she said once, you win by staying in the game. Uh, and you just talked a component about how you stay in the game. Were there times when you did doubt if you should stay in the game? Oh, for sure. I will tell you, and I, and I actually talk about it in the book too, but in my late 20s, I mean, here I am, I'm all ambitious, I'm ready to go, I'm doing all these things. And by my late 20s, I already had a husband and two kids. I have a career that is on an, the upward trajectory. I've actually been invited to my first nonprofit board of directors, right? So all these things, you look on the outside and think, whoa, got it together, it's really working. But inside, I was dying. I was, I was totally burning out. And I thought, gosh, can I, I mean, this is everything that I wanted, but can I really do this? Yeah. And 
fortunately, I went to go see a psychologist. Mm-hmm. Um, and he helped me see that what was happening was that I was giving away 100% of myself to everybody else, to the job, to my kids, to my husband, to the community, to, I mean, you name it, anybody wanted or needed, I did it and I gave. Yep. But I didn't do anything to fill my own tank. So it was no wonder that I was feeling like I was feeling. And honestly, ever since then, self-care is a very important aspect of my life. And I've never had that problem like that, right. if you will, again. That's very interesting. So that was when you were, you talked about it in the book, you know, that time in your life where you felt that you were losing yourself. Exactly. And you were literally giving it away. Right, right. And we don't even realize we're doing it. Yeah. And so how long did it take you to get back on track and go, actually, I do need to fill my tank and that's the way I'm going to be able to fuel my ambition? Yeah. Honestly, it was probably about, a, I don't even remember, six to nine months. You know, I figure I was sent to him about six months. Yeah, to get myself back, Yeah. get my head back, get, you know, a plan and a strategy and all those things. Yeah, probably about that long. Yeah, going back to, you know, so, so much of what's so powerful about uh, your story in the book is the attitude and the character with which you, you sort of take on the world and how you observe the mindset you have. And you certainly would have encountered considerable gender and racial stereotypes in your personal and professional life. But you didn't stop at that's not fair. What you, the book shows us, tells us and shows us that if you allow life's injustices to define you, they will. Is, is there one story that really resonates with you that the listeners would, would, you know, would bring that to life? Because it's very powerful in the book. You know, probably the one that happened early, but still, here I am in my 50s, and I still remember it like it was yesterday. But it was, I was in elementary school, and I'm in, I can't remember now, fourth, fifth grade, I guess, when it happened, and they implemented a gifted and talented program. So kids all took a test, and those that scored well got put into the special program, which meant during you know, two periods of the day, one period of the day, you left the regular class and went off to the special class. And when the test results first came, I qualified and I was part of the gifted and talented program, right? So I got up and I left and I went with everybody else. And then just a week or two later, apparently something went wrong and they had to give the test all over again. And I was the only child of all the gifted and talented kids that didn't get back in the second time. Right. So now, not only do I feel terrible myself that obviously they thought I thought I was smart and now they're telling me I'm not, um, but now all the kids know because I used to leave with the group and now I don't leave with the group. So obviously I'm a bit of a failure, right? So that was a horrible time. And it was already a tough time in elementary school. It was just a really tough environment. So to have that happen on top of it and you know, my parents were very much believers in life isn't fair. And so when I came home and I told mom, you know, she, she gave me a hug and she said, oh, Shelly, hopefully next time, you know, work and study harder and next time you're qualified, right? So you do what you're going to do about it, which is work harder. That was kind of the message. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until, heck, I was probably in my late teens, right? that mom even told me that they absolutely knew it was a racial thing, but there was no way they were going to tell me that um, because they didn't want to undermine me in any way or have me, 
you know, they were just concerned that if they ever used anything race related, that then I would start seeing it everywhere. So anyway, so that was their way of handling it. But there were many moments like that. That was the first where something happens. It just doesn't seem right. But on top of not right, it puts you in a position where you, you look bad on top of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, there are, there are many moments like that. Yeah. You talk about um, being an outsider can mean you had to learn to earn trust and respect and how to get along with people. And you just talked about sort of magnet marketing. How important was that to your success, do you think? Oh, it's huge. A absolutely huge. Um, I, you know, I haven't accomplished anything by myself. You know, everything I've, I've done, there have been people that have played all kinds of different roles. So if I wasn't able to surround myself with people who wanted to actually help me succeed because they felt I was helping them succeed, right, you know, et cetera, then I think it would have been just way too hard. Because what people don't talk about is it's hard. You know, you hear people in these 30-minute, you know, one-hour sessions, and you hear their life, and it sounds like, oh, they took step one, step two, step three, and bing, they became CEO or, you know, developed a $100 million company or, right, I mean, all these wonderful things. And you listen and you think from the outside, oh, man, that was so easy and straightforward for them. And because it's so hard for me, maybe I'm just not cut out for it. Mm -hmm. And part of what I want people to get from my book is it's hard. It's hard for everybody. So just because it's hard, don't stop. Don't think, oh, it's just hard for me and therefore I must not be cut out for it. No, no, no. It's hard for everybody. The key is figuring out how to work through it, how to work through it effectively. And those are the things that I try to talk about in my book. Here are strategies and approaches and ways to handle all those obstacles you're going to face, the barriers, the naysayers. I can't tell you how many things I did that people told me I had no business doing. <laughs> <laughs> that must feel good as well. And, you know, let's not forget the you talked before about uh, family and uh, that foundation. You've got this amazing husband, Scotty, who prioritized your career over his. How, how important is choosing your life partner to your career success? Oh, I personally, it was critical for me. Yeah, absolutely critical. And I knew it was going to be critical. I was fortunate in that I came from a family. My parents had a long-term marriage. They are still married, um, going on, gosh, 60 years here. And I knew I wanted a long-term partner, right? So I wanted to find a husband that I loved, but that was also going to be a long-term life partner. Mm -hmm. So there were elements and characteristics that I knew I needed in order for that to happen. So we talked about my career objectives and ambitions before we even got married. Right. And that so way you, he really knew what he was signing yeah, up for. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And, but more than that, I knew what I was signing up for, yeah. right. With, with all of that, because what I wanted, I firmly believe that one of the elements that will, again, improve your odds of having a long-term partnership, a long-term marriage is having a shared vision for the future. Yeah. So many couples don't spend time talking about what do they envision for themselves, for their family? You know, what, what does that future look like? Mm -hmm. And then when the future ends up different, it creates challenges. So I wanted us to have 
a long-term common joint vision for what we wanted and what we were trying to do together. And was there learning along the way, Shelley? I mean, I think a lot of women are in this in the throes in the early early days really of renegotiating you know roles and work roles and gender roles um can we talk about how as women we often don't release responsibility for traditionally female household and family tasks <laughs> yes and this goes back honestly to the whole judgment thing when somebody comes to my home they open the door you welcome them in for the first time they look around and scotty and i welcome them and they'll say, oh, Shelly, what a lovely home you have. Mm -hmm. They don't say, Scotty, what a lovely home you have. They say Shelly, right? Because the home, how it looks, is it neat? Is it clean? Is it well appointed? All those things they assume is the women's role. And therefore, they're going to judge the woman on it. Yeah. If Scotty walked out of a house with a wrinkled shirt or clothes that didn't match, right? Or, you know, whatever it might be, they actually wouldn't think ill of him. They think ill of me. <laughs> yeah. If my child walks out, right, with hair askew and this, that, they're going to think, what kind of mother does that child have? They're not going to think, what kind of father yeah. does that child have? So is it any wonder that women feel the need to control all of those things because they know whether they like it or not, they're getting judged on it? Yeah, that's what drives it. Now, that said, it's hard, but we have to learn to give up that guilt, to not allow ourselves to feel badly about what other people choose to judge us on versus what we decide proactively that we will be judged on or that we'll judge ourselves on because you can't do it all really well. At least I found that you can't do it all really well, not all by yourself. Yeah. Um, and so trying to, right, makes it very hard. So let me give, I'll give you an example. You know, I talked about your kids walk out of the house, right, and you get judged on that. Well, my daughter had thick, curly hair that was a challenge, frankly, in terms of to, to brush, to make look nice, et cetera. So typically when she was little and growing up, you'd brush it and put it in braids. Okay. Well, Scotty's got to do that too. I can't be the only one doing her hair. And so he has never done little girl's hair. He's never braided. He's never done any of that before, but he's up for the challenge. He's going to learn how to do it. And how do you learn? Practice. Yeah. So the first like couple months of him doing her hair, she walked out of the house looking pretty crazy at times, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, things not quite balanced, one braid nice and thick, one super thinning, one, I mean, she, you know, it, hey, but did he get good? He absolutely did. But we still have a picture on the wall of a day he had done her hair and it was a picture day. Now this shows you how much I am totally giving up, <laughs> right? The guilt and everything else. I didn't say, oh my God, it's picture day. Let me do it today. Yeah. No, no. It was his day to do it. Um, and if you do that, by the way, just a quick aside, if I were to have gone and say, oh, let me do it today because it's picture day, right? When he's normally would be his turn and normally the whole bit, I am totally undermining his confidence. Because I'm saying really clearly, you're really not good at this, so let me do it for you, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, who wants that? I, you can't do that, so you have to live with it. So he did it. The picture's still on the wall. She was supposed to have two braids and then pinned up on her head like a little crown. 
Mm-hmm. Well, by the time it was time to take pictures, she had one braid pinned on her head and one hanging down that was starting to unravel. <laughs> <laughs> I love and it. it is on the wall to this day because it is a testament to number one, she was smiling beautifully. She didn't care. Yeah, she didn't care. Right. <laughs> and it did it change anything? Nothing. It changed absolutely nothing. Um, so that's why it's on the wall. It's just that's here's wonderful. the example. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great example. Throughout your book, you talk about referencing choices and the importance of making choices, you know, planning and making smart choices. And you use the word choices around your career and your personal life rather than sacrifices. Can you expand a little bit about why making smart choices is so critical? Sure. But if you don't mind, can I just touch on the sacrifices versus choices point first? Because that's one that really... uh, it just rubs me, rubs me the wrong way. When I think of sacrifices, you know, somebody says, Shelly, what sacrifices have you made? I tell them none. And the reason, I, and they look at me like, what? Now, I don't mean that I haven't made hard choices, and I don't mean that I haven't made hard trade-offs. But to me, a sacrifice is something that I do completely for someone else, not for me. Well, as soon as I do that, then I no longer own it. It's somehow, I didn't cause it, I didn't affect it, I'm the victim in that, is how I see or how I feel. And this is, again, my my definition. So by saying it's my choice, it's my decision on trade-off, then I own it and I keep the power and I am not a victim. So, you know, an example would be, we moved our family around quite a bit during my career but told, promised the kids that when they got to high school, it would be their choice as to whether we moved. I might still have to move, but it would be their choice. Well, sure enough, Kathleen's just finished her freshman year in high school. We're in Dallas, Texas, and I have an opportunity that I really want to and need to take in Silicon Valley. That's where I'm trying to get to, to Silicon Valley. It's the late 90s, um, and that's where I want to be given I'm in tech. Well, I come to her with, hey, here's the opportunity. It's your choice. And she said, Mom, I really want to finish high school here. And I said, okay. Scotty and I talked about it. And I commuted to Silicon Valley for three years. Wow. Now, I could totally position that as, oh, I sacrificed that for my daughter. Right? I totally could position it that. And people would say, oh, yes, absolutely. But the answer is no. I made that decision. I wanted to be able to keep my promise. I wanted her to be able to have the high school career that she wanted. And I also wanted to stay on track with my professional goals. And Scotty wanted that too. We were a team. We were heading this together. So did he have to take on a significantly significantly more work being all by himself Monday through Friday with two kids in school? And the answer is he absolutely did. But he was up for that. And we said, yeah, this makes sense for what we are trying to do collectively. This makes sense. And so we made that choice. And it's a hard one, but I own it. Yeah, you own it. And just even using the word sacrifice versus choice is very powerful. And as you say, it kind of makes you confront, are you actually making a choice here and on what basis and how collectively? Oh, you've got to tell me the story of the winter coat you bought yourself at 19, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it speaks volumes about planfulness and making uh, choices. 
Yes, yes, yes. So I am, I'm very intentional. And, you know, a lot of people, so what's intention? Intention is setting goals and then putting plans in place to achieve the goals and then living the plan. But what I find is, you know, a lot of people will set goals. Some people will put a plan in place to achieve the goal. But very few people make decisions every day consistent with their plan. And let me explain how that works. So the code story. So here I am. I'm in college. Um, it's my sophomore year, I think. Yeah, sophomore year in college. And I need a new winter coat. Okay, well, that doesn't sound like much. Okay, you need a new winter coat. Well, I had a few things going on. One, my goal was to leave, you know, leave Wharton and join a tech company and become a CEO. I also wanted, if possible, to get married earlier versus later because my parents were young parents when we were growing up and I thought that was nice and I just wanted to be a young parent. Um, and I also wanted to have kids early because I thought it would give me more flexibility in my career at later stages. Uh, so if, if possible, I wanted to marry young and I also wanted to have kids young. Well, at the time I have no steady boyfriend. Okay, and I'm also working to save for my wedding because my parents said you can have help for college or help for a wedding, you choose. Of course, I chose college. So as a sophomore, I am working 20 hours a week for IBM um, while I'm in while I'm at uh, school, and I'm also catering on periodic weekends, and I'm volunteering for different events so I can take home leftovers, right, to eat. I mean, I'm doing yep. all kinds of things to save money and do the. All right, so you had to have the background. So now I need a coat. Okay, I went to the outlet and I bought a coat, and I came back to show my roommate my coat. Well, the style is pea coat, very fitted, buttoned, double-breasted. Mm -hmm. And what I bought was a swing coat, which is basically a coat that's kind of loose and wide at the bottom, tight up top and loose and wide at the bottom. And she's like, Shelly, you know, it's, it's nice, but it's not very stylish. And I said, I know, but I wanted a coat that I can wear when I'm pregnant. <laughs> and she's like, what, what, right? Well, I'm figuring, okay, how long should a good winter coat last? And I'm thinking, heck, you know, six, seven years, right? Good winter coat. <laughs> so in six or seven years, if everything goes according to plan, I should be married and be having kids. <laughs> so I wanted a coat that I could wear during that whole period. And yeah. she's like, Shelly, what? You don't, even, you don't have a boyfriend. What are, you, what are you talking about? But here's the deal. I made decisions all through my life, assuming that what I planned would happen. And that way was always front of mind. Mm -hmm. It was always, okay, here's what's gonna happen. So here's what I need to do, get ready for it. And therefore it helped me actually improve my luck. Sure enough, I did find a man and I did get married at like 22. And I did have my first child right away. So at like 23. So you wore and that coat. I wore that winter coat. Yes, I totally wore that winter coat. Totally wore that winter coat uh, when I was pregnant. But I think, you know, making, thinking about your plan and your goals and then making daily decisions consistent with it also helps you visualize mm. what you're doing, where you're going, and it becomes real. It becomes part of you. And, you know, and then somehow, the force of the world and universe and everything, I honestly believe it increases your odds. It definitely increased mine. Yeah, I just love it. Shelley, your your Aunt D has a document. It's a yellowed parchment. It's called a, a deed of manumission, a handwritten letter penned by a slave owner verifying the release of one of your ancestors from slavery. Well, what does that mean to you? 
Well, I tell you, the first time, first time I saw that document, mm. it, um, I can't, I can't even explain all the emotions yeah. that I went through. It's like, whoa, first you're amazed that you even have it. And then it's actual tangible. And then I'm thinking back on, you know, books I've read and movies and I'm envisioning my ancestors, right? On those boats stacked up, right? Coming up, being brought over in terms of Africa. I'm thinking of them chained and beat. And I'm just thinking all that they went through and survived um, and all in this paper and how tenuous this paper was. It was literally just a handwritten document that if at any point got destroyed, freedom would be gone. Um, and so you have this almost sickening kind of feeling because you're reading it and it doesn't even really sound like a person. You know, they could be describing anything. Um, but what it also gave me was the sense of just how far my family had come and the strength and the power and the will that enabled them to get this far just a few generations down the road. So I took strength in that, frankly. Yeah, so it gave you strength because, yeah, you were able to connect with your ancestors. It's very powerful. And I, I just love the way you tell your story and, and also the way, Shelley, you describe finding the current and riding it, you know, whether that's in industries or organizations, positioning yourself so it can propel you forward. How might women learn to spot those currents? You've given us a great story about how to reframe challenges and to take for example, being an outsider and to create a new muscle and a new capability to serve you well. What about learning to find and ride the current? Yes, so the current is all about finding the what I call the path to power. So I wanted to be a CEO. So it was really important as I got involved with different organizations to understand, well, what is the path to power? And the way I would find it or try to find it is frankly by doing my homework. You know, I use homework all the time. I, I Homework doesn't stop just because you leave school. I do homework to this day. Homework is just about doing the work to prepare yourself and asking and, and learning and researching. So what was the career path of the CEOs, mm -hmm. right? So when I joined IBM, for instance, I joined in sales. And people thought I was crazy. You're coming out of Wharton and you're going to go sell computers. And you're supposed to go become an investment banker, or international finance person, right? A P&G yeah. product manager. I mean, something sexy and cool. And I'm going to go sell computers. Well, it turned out when I actually looked it all up and did the research, which, by the way, was much harder then than it is now. Yeah. <laughs> every single CEO at IBM started out in sales. So I said, all right, that must be the path. But that's the way I always looked for the path. I would try to find out, all right, who's in roles that I'm aspiring to? What was their experience? What roles did they have along the way? And then try to find that current. Shelley, your book and your life and who you are clearly demonstrates that it does take vision, determination, strategizing, discipline, all of which is outlined in the book to make the life you want, not just the professional life, but your personal life as well. Exactly. And I, I wonder what final advice you might have for ambitious women leaders. 
take ownership of your career. And, you know, when I say that, I mean full ownership. It doesn't matter what company you're working for or even if you're building your own company. But be intentional and take ownership. You would never, ever spend two or $3,000 for an airline ticket. Pack your bags, get yourself to the airport, get on the plane, strap yourself in, and then look at the pilot and say, where are we going anyway? <laughs> right? You would never do that. And yet, and yet, we spend tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, getting ourselves educated, getting certificates and experience and knowledge and attending conferences and all these things we do to try to build up our capability. And then we let somebody else figure out what our career path is. Yep. We let the company decide or a boss or a mentor or no, no, be intentional. You invested in yourself. You are the only one that can ensure that you get the right ROI. So be intentional. Wonderful. Own your career. Own your career, be intentional, because as you say, you're the only one that can be in the driving seat. Shirley, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your insights and your experience. A fantastic book, Unapologetically Ambitious. I really recommend it. Uh, Shirley, such a pleasure to meet you. And thank you so much for taking time and sharing your amazing wisdom. Thank you, Shelley. You are very welcome. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and to talk with all your listeners. Thank you. Thanks, Shelley. Thanks for listening to Grit in the Oyster. If you're enjoying our conversations, do subscribe, rate and review us on your podcast platform and join me again soon. You can also find more information and resources on building your best leadership self on pennydevolk.com, including my blog that covers topics from how to negotiate powerfully as a woman and building your authority through to having your voice heard and boosting confidence, all in support of building your leadership career.